Hey guys, so I am live with Mr. Brian Kurtz. Many of you may already know him. I'm sure most people in my audience already know him. As the guy who used to run Boardroom and now runs Titans and, and recently released his book with Craig Simpson. You may remember from my interview a couple of weeks back. Anyways, I'm really looking forward to this interview and let's just jump straight into it. Hey Brian, how you doing mate? I'm good. You know, it's like I, I've never done back. I did an interview. I told you last night at like 11 p.m. Eastern time in in the States with another good guy from Australia. So I don't know. I think maybe uh, it's time to move to Australia. I mean, there's a lot of people that are moving out of the country here in the United States. So not that I'm I'm, I'm not yeah, one of them. But. Let's not even get into that. We check the audience working. Yeah, we're not doing any politics. Although I, I'll just say one quick thing. Okay. Because I, I've seen a lot of posts. I never post anything about politics. I'm not going to tell you who I voted for. Um, and I know a lot of your audience is probably not American, but, it, you know, they're probably a mix. But the thing I'll, I will tell you, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, well, I, I just love teaching in Europe. I love teaching all over the world. And, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not the, uh, the American that thinks we're better than everybody, but I am the American that believes that marketing – is you know kind of originates in the u.s for the most part or at least the state-of-the-art stuff and then you know so many great people all over the world are adapting stuff that we do in the u.s but the point i wanted to make which i think is really fascinating and it kind of can lead into some questions if you want about copywriting and marketing hmm. following donald trump his campaign his copy let's forget this is not a political conversation looking at his messaging Looking at his copy, you know, Gary Halbert, who's one of the legends that I profile in my book with Craig, you know, always said, you know, it's not about, you know, you, you want a starving crowd. I mean, he understood that better than anybody. You know, building a brilliant burger has nothing to do with whether you're going to, you know, sell a lot of burgers. It's really what's, you know, what does the audience want? And so the other thing was the languaging. You know, Gene Schwartz, another legend in my book, used to say, you know, You've got your market, you've got the language of that market, speak to that market in that language. Now, did he, did he have a, a message that went to everybody? That ev Maybe not, but I will tell you this, his message appealed to everybody. And Gary Halbert, he used to say, right to, I guess, a fifth grade level. And when you're above a seventh grade level, you're gonna lose a lot of your audience. And then you have to use the language that they understand. During the primary period, if you studied Donald Trump's speeches, more so than in the, in the general campaign, that there's not one speech I ever saw him make that a fifth grader couldn't understand. And not only that, it was like stuff that you listen to it, whether you agree or disagree, you get exactly what he's saying. Mm. You know, who doesn't understand, I'm gonna build a wall and I'm gonna put a door in it. You know, I mean, everybody then gets an image. And I don't think he studied Gary Halbert. I mean, you know, no. mind you. But he understood human nature. He understood a certain uh, element. And so studying the copywriting of Donald Trump is really an interesting exercise. And I'll bet a lot of copywriters I know are already doing it because in my mastermind groups, we've had this discussion. But you want to look all around you all the time for clues as to how people are communicating to specific audiences. And that's kind of one of my big things, you know, messaging and copy to list. You know, it's and every list should be should be talked to differently. And Donald Donald Trump talked to a very big list in a very he is powerful one list. of 
the biggest direct response campaigns. Every time, every four years, you can observe direct response when you're spending millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in ad spend, PR, everything. Exactly. See the response. I mean, if you're looking at, as you were saying, then he had a limited budget, which he stretched way further than his competitors. Classic underdogs. Yeah, and he knew that he had the pulpit. You know, when you know there wasn't once. I mean, yeah, I mean that was a nice thing that he that he would say controversial stuff so that every every news organization would put him on in prime time. You can't pay for that, and he knew that. But then the message, and again, this is not about whether I agree or disagree. And anybody who comments here, yeah, anybody who comments on my politics, you know, you're wrong. Whatever you're thinking, you're wrong. I mean, whether you think I'm for him or against him, you're wrong. Hmm. I I can tell you for a fact. So um, this this is really there's a there's a marketing case study in this particular election that every copywriter should study and adapt. I've just had a friend comment here, 768 million ad spend, $5.38 per vote. That's one way of looking at it. Oh, that's pretty funny. The ROI per vote. I love it. I love it. I love it. Cool. Um, let's talk a bit about your background because, like I said, most of my audience knows who you are, but I think there's quite a few that still don't. Could you tell us where you start, what did you do, and where are you now? Yeah, so... You know, it's funny because I'm on a lot of podcasts that are based on uh, that the avatars are, are, are mostly entrepreneurs and young entrepreneurs. And while I am an entrepreneur at my core, the interesting thing is that you know the the privileged part of my of my upbringing, as it were, not that I was you know born with a silver spoon in my mouth and you know I came from a working class family. It was you know not you know not it wasn't hard, but it wasn't super easy. It just I had a I had a kind of a boring childhood in that respect. However, the thing that that was interesting is that I I always felt like you know if I wasn't going to be a teacher like all of my family were, that I was I wanted to go into business or I wanted to write I wanted to do something that was different. And I definitely had this entrepreneurial uh, gene in me, but it wasn't the norm. It wasn't like I couldn't work for anybody. It wasn't like I saw myself as unemployable because I was a team player. I I liked people. I didn't need to be on my own and make all the decisions. But what was interesting is that, you know, the privileged part of my background, as I said, was, you know, getting a job at Boardroom when I was 23, you know, a company that was a $3 million business at the time, growing, um, you know, run by an entrepreneur, the, the typical kitchen table, startup entrepreneur, Marty Edelston. And, you know, to have somebody who then saw in me what he saw in himself without me having to take the risk of starting the thing from scratch yeah it's it's a pretty privileged thing and I've, I've written about it you know i'm not apologizing for it it is what it is but the thing that i did do and the thing that i think i'd want to talk to your folks about especially if they're not on their own yet but they want to be on their own is that you if you're not entrepreneurial you always have to be entrepreneurial and I, that word gets spell checked so it's not really a word but entrepreneurial with an eye is a very, very important concept, especially if you're working for working for the man, so to speak. And even if you're in a big corporate environment, there are ways it's harder. But the fact that if you can work in an entrepreneurial environment and have your ideas heard, report directly to the entrepreneur, not get discouraged when your ideas are nixed because a lot of entrepreneurs 
always think that their ideas are better than yours anyway. But stick with that and always have a voice and always think about being a rainmaker, even though you're not the primary rainmaker initially. That is a mindset of entrepreneurialism that I say to people, if you can figure out a, a road, I was, again, I, I, I was lucky in a lot of ways, but I made the most of it. And then, you know, within 10 years of being at Boardroom, I was, I was an owner. I, I was, you know, I, Marty gave me a lot of responsibility to kind of run the marketing of the company. And then the journey, you know, those of you, those who don't know my background, not that, you know, I'm I, I throwing numbers around, I'm uncomfortable with, everybody seems to want to do it, but the company did go from 3 million in 1981, three to five, um, and then we hit our peak in 2005, 2006, and we were about 157 million. And a lot of that was just being a great multi-channel direct marketer. We we did direct mail. That's where we cut our teeth. We we learned what to do on the internet. Not as well as I would have liked. I would have liked to have done more. Um, but we definitely learned e-newsletters. We definitely learned an advertising model and an affiliate model to some degree. Um, but then we also learned how to do TV. We learned how to do print advertising in space. We learned how to do inserts. We, we as I said, I never met a medium I didn't like, and we, we would just test everything. So being a entrepreneur, always thinking of new ideas, having an entrepreneur who would support me so then I could become the entrepreneur within the organization, which is what the entrepreneur is. And then when Marty started phasing out, you know, I was the number one rainmaker after being the number two rainmaker. And I had a lot of training and I was in a good position. And then, you know, we, I did the big Titans event in 2014, which was a big tribute event to Marty after he passed away. And it was an epic event, um, kind of like one of the things I wanted to do before I left, because I, I didn't see the company, you know, I was working closely with Marty's family. And I thought that if I wasn't going to buy the company, um, you know, from the family and not in a hostile way, um, I thought it was just was better for them to do what they want to do with the business and then it was time for me to go out and become an educator and so the after 34 years at boardroom building that I decided I went out and I went out with a bang you know this Titans event um, those of your listeners who were not, not at the event um, just to give you a sense it was a it was pretty epic it was the speakers were uh, Dan, it was Dan Kennedy Gary Bensavenga best copywriter alive then all the great copywriters who work for Boardroom, um, Paris Lampropolis, David Deutsch, Eric Betwell, and Arthur Johnson, who were responsible for, I think, 650 million pieces of successful direct mail Same. over uh, 20 years at Boardroom. Then I had um, uh, Ken McCarthy, who was one of the pioneers on the internet. That was day one. Then I had Perry Marshall, um, uh, Jay Abraham, uh, Joe Sugarman, uh, Greg Ranker of Guthy Ranker, who's the infomercial guy. Uh, Fred Katona, who just passed, who's the probably the king of direct response radio. Um, and then I brought together some of my uh, contemporaries, Jim Quick, Michael Fishman, and, and Ryan Lee, uh, who are kind of the people who are trailblazing today, both online and offline. So it was it was one of those events. And then after the event, it was like, okay, I can kind of launch an education direct marketing education business from this. And then from that, I developed two mastermind groups. I wrote the book with Craig. Um, I've got a bunch of ideas for courses. The course I really want to do is direct mail for internet marketers. This, it's a funny thing, you know, what goes around comes around. 
And I've got more internet marketers writing to me saying, what's this direct mail thing? I hear it's like a new medium that I could kind of work on. And, and <laughs> Seriously? Oh, yeah. Not one that, well, they say I'm being a little sarcastic, but they okay. are basically saying direct mail. I, I'm hearing something about it. I, you know, and like, you know, do you realize that everything and that's what that's what our, the book is about that, you know, the advertising solution Craig and I wrote that the book is about, you know, the fundamentals, you know, Perry Marshall talks about, you know, Perry Marshall, the guy who's the Google, Ad, was the Google AdWords guy, Facebook, one of the first Facebook guys, mm. one of the best direct marketers around, um, almost all online, talks about the fundamentals and, and he and I just did an interview about source, about, you know, when you go back to the original source, it, it's everything. I, I told a story uh, recently to a couple of people that I did another podcast where the interviewer was wanted to take a deep dive on modeling and direct mail, regression mo list modeling and segmentation. And I talked about the statistics behind it, not that I'm a statistician, but I understood it. And we took this deep dive and it got a little granular, but it was a good discussion. And then at the end of the discussion, you know, he was just, you know, he was so into what we were talking about. He posted the interview on Facebook. And then someone in the thread on Facebook said, oh, this interview with Brian Kurtz is amazing. Not that I care. Uh, he said, this interview with Brian Kurtz was amazing. He talks all about these modeling. And here, I thought Facebook invented lookalike models. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa. And then he goes, mind blown. And I'm thinking to myself, this oh, is you unbelievable. you didn't you? I remember you posted yeah, this. Yeah, I did back. post it. Yeah. I did. And the guy, it's funny, the guy who, who posted that, you know, mind blown, the guy's a really good marketer, so this is not a put down of him at all. It's just that he would never have known the extent to which we modeled and segmented our lists in direct mail in in my in my world in the 1980s and 90s, but even before that, and how that was a precursor to everything that's being done with modeling on Facebook today, everything that's being done in Google AdWords. I mean, if you follow the work of Ryan Levesque, for example, and his it's Ask survey. Yeah, it's all, but it's all about list segmentation. It's all about, in fact, my blurb for his book was something about, you know, Ryan, it's one of the most important books, his desk book about, you know, Since Break Advertising, which was Gene Schwartz's classic. And it, because it's basically monitoring human behavior and then how we message to the different segments. You know, the idea of what Ryan does in terms of creating buckets and then how we communicate to those buckets, it's brilliant. It's just, you know, total yeah. brilliance. And so, you know, it's not just what goes around comes around. It's not just um, taking a stroll down memory lane. It's bigger than that. Hmm. If you understand the sources, just to use that other example about Facebook, if you understood what it was like to do regression modeling in direct mail in the 1980s and 90s, think about the kinds of questions you might ask your media broker or buyer on Facebook when you're doing a lookalike model, you will have a whole different mindset when you're asking questions about what demographics and psychographics to go after. And it'll be more than just likes. It'll be more, you'll ask questions that you never thought you would ever ask. So I'm such a believer in the fundamental truths. And I know this is not just me. That's why for the book, if you notice the blurbs, I got Levesque to write a blurb. I got Jeff Walker to write a blurb. I got Yannick Silver to write a blurb. I mean, uh, you know, I got people who are considered some of the best online marketers in the world 
to basically write a blurb for me, not because I twisted their arm, but because they understand that the fundamentals of direct response marketing never go away. Anyone who's really got chops has studied the the classics. The turn of the century guys are the ones who pretty much cemented what we know now. All that's changed is the method or the medium, but it still comes down to the same principles. It does. You know, you look at uh, scientific advertising, which I have a illustrated and annotated version that I'm giving away as a bonus for people who buy the book. And, and, you know, that book was written in 1923. Claude Hopkins died in 1937, the author of the book. That book is 100% relevant. I mean, there are people today that say, I mean, a copywriter comes to me and says, what books would you recommend? One, Breakthrough Advertising, although it's more advanced. Mm -hmm. Um, written in 1966 by Gene Schwartz. Not one word has changed. I'm reprinting it right now, and I'm not changing one word of the text. I might add a few ads and an appendix and an, an, an afterword, but I'm not changing one word of the text, and it's 100% relevant. And the same with scientific advertising. And and the thing is, it's like human nature doesn't change. You know, I mean, it's funny. My I have an email address that's T-Rex. You know, like the dinosaur, and I'm making fun in a way. But it's sort of like I, I do it because I it's it's like I'm not poking fun at myself. It's it's that you know, it's the non-extinct dinosaurs that will definitely still still roam the earth. And it's not because we're preaching. It's not because you know the other stuff was better than what's today. That's I. It's the exact opposite. What's going on today in marketing this is the best time in the world ever ever to be a marketer. Mm. And so. I am just having a blast being able to, I always talk about my golden ticket. You know, you don't know me that well and you're a lot younger than me and yet you mm-hmm. want to interview me. Why? I don't know, but I'm, I'm excited about it. And so now I get a golden ticket to talk to your mm-hmm. audience who I never would have gotten to talk to about this stuff. And you know what? I'll bet out of this interview at some point, whether it's tomorrow, next week, a year from now, I'll be at a conference. I'll I'll be on someone else's thing, and they'll say, "I heard you on 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 on, on Joseph's interview," and 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 they're going to say, "I you know I love what you talk." Maybe they'll say, "I hate hated what you talked about." I love what you talk about, and you know what? I'll find out what do you do, and they're going to tell me that they're working on some you know whiz bang technology as it adapts you know demographic data to to YouTube, and I'm going to be like. Can I know more about that? Because I want to bring that to my clients. I want to bring that to my mastermind. Maybe you want to be on a phone call with my high-end direct response marketer mastermind group and teach them something that I definitely don't know. So what a great opportunity, right? You mentioned this before, just the fact, yes, last night, your last night for you, oh, you were second. talking, you're right. I should have turned that off, but I didn't, sorry. <laughs> Some good live interviews, mate. We get to experience yeah, everything. Yeah, it's fine. It's, you know, you know it's, it's early in the morning. I said no one's going to call me, but go ahead. <laughs> it's all good. So the beauty of the age we're living in now is we're more connected. There's more data available. So you can use those direct response principles that you spoke about before and that were so well taught with so much more data available to us now. It's just a goldmine for someone who has it is. more experience. It really is. That's well put. It's sort of like... Let's take what we knew and then, you know, put it on steroids in a way. And yeah. and that is super exciting. And and the interesting thing is that, you know, when Perry Marshall said our book, Craig, the book that we, Craig and I wrote, mm. you know, should sit next on the desk of 
of marketers today as a checklist so you don't miss anything that's a pretty good use you know of stuff right you know that's a pretty good use that you have a list of everything that should go in a headline everything that should go in a sales letter um, tips to doing the right kind of research I mean those are things that are just so powerful um, and they don't go away they just don't go away and and it's funny I, I did a post in a Facebook group, big Facebook group hmm. um, and I basically said I wasn't doing it for people to feel sorry for me and some people were like coming to my defense I didn't need that but I posted post was something like you know I'm being hammered a little bit by not that many people, but a couple of people saying, you know, why do I want to like, you know, learn about six dead guys who, you know, none of them marketed, you know, in the on the Internet for the most part. I mean, the most recent guy that we cover in the book is Gary Halbert. And Halbert knew, you know, was definitely alive when the Internet was here, but he was still a direct mail guy for the most part and a print guy. So, you know, when 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 people. um you know, when I said, so I said I'm being hammered by people saying, you know, why do I need to follow six dead guys who never worked on the Internet? And I said, it seems to me that they're missing out. And then the thread got really long. You know, there are a few people that said, oh, Brian, don't worry about it. I said, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. But I just want you to know that there's, there's a mindset out there that says if it's old news, it's bad news. And you know what? I know because I hang out with people like Jay Abraham. I hang out with people like Perry Marshall, and they're they're very different, right? Perry, Jay is older than me. Perry's younger than me, but they both respect the past in a way so that they can adapt the best of the past into the present and into the future. That to me is a goldmine, and there's a goldmine of information in these classic pioneers and their books that I think a lot of online marketers today are missing out on, and they're they're already making money. Easy to make money on the internet, much harder to sustain yourself for the long haul. So the idea of having a business for the long haul is what they're missing. I'll get two quotes, quick quotes. Uh, Chris Farrell, great online marketer, says a product is not a business. So how many online marketers come up with a great product and they think they have a business? What they have is a product that sells well on a with affiliates. What's the back end and what's you know what's your funnel, right? And if you don't have that, you don't have a business. The second thing is. A promotion is not a business. That's from John Carlton, who's a longtime copywriter. So Carlton is saying, like, you know, he hears these people that have this great promotion, a video sales letter that's killing it on ClickBank or it's the number one wherever affiliate, but there's no business behind it. There's no infrastructure. So you do a couple of launches. Maybe you even put a million bucks in the bank. I don't know. But is that what you want to do for the long haul? And without the fundamentals, especially on copy, creative, how it relates to list selection, how it relates to your offer, and then how it relates to creating back-end products, you're lost, I think, for the long haul. In the short term, you'll do fine because the barrier to entry online is so low. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to comment here. Okay, do you know, do you deal much with political writing at all, the copywriters? Have you dealt in that space? Political copywriters? Copywriting. Is there a copywriter yeah, I mean, there? I know... I, I follow, I mean, yeah, the answer is it's not a core area for me at all. I'm much more in health and finance where the key areas at boardroom. But I know I know the political fundraisers and there's an art to political fundraising. What What's the question? I just had Titus, I can't pronounce his last name, say which direct response writer or team should Hillary have hired to have won? 
Uh, I, it's way it's bigger. It's a loaded than question. <laughs> yeah, wrong question. Um, however, I understand the question. What what was missing was the messaging. I don't know what copywriter would have done it right. In fact, I've written a bunch of blog posts recently about copywriting, even though I'm not one, although I've worked with every great one. And the thing that I found in my career is that the great copywriters have certain things in common. I wrote a blog post once called um, You May Not Know It When You See It. And I kind of made the analogy to pornography. You know, pornography, you'll know it when you see it. You might not know when you when you stumble across a great copywriter whether they're a great copywriter until you ask certain questions. And so, but then even if they're a great copywriter, are they going to be a right copywriter in your niche? And do they have the passion to go deep as opposed to go wide? And so, yes, I mean, I think what Hillary missed um, was the audience. I mean, if someone in her in her in her group had read Breakthrough Advertising and talked about that, you know, you can't create the market, you got to see where the market is and then write to it. You know, that's what she missed. Which copywriter? That's not the issue. The issue is the messaging and understanding what, you know, what the audience wanted. What what did that starving crowd want? And, um, you know, it's funny, in, in the last election in the United States, um, when I followed that one, one of, the, one of my takeaways was that Romney lost the social media battle to Obama. Obama's team understood not only the messaging was good, but they also understood that the medium had changed, that the media was not just about TV. It was much more about, you know, Twitter and Facebook and and um, uh, email and what they did online in terms of what, the, what Romney did. And there were people who were... Um, who were telling the Romney campaign, um, basically saying, look, you're missing the boat here. You better get somebody on your team who understands social media. This was only four years ago. I mean, four years ago. So now you look and you got the candidate on the right, uh, uh, Trump, who was living on Twitter. So that was another thing that, I mean, he nobody's, really I mean, he talks about it, but everybody's like putting him down. Beforehand. Trump, he's been mastering social media for a long time now, especially when he went through the whole apprentice phase he went did yeah no you got to give him credit for a 70 year old guy where romney kind of i there, i know somebody who was working indirectly with the romney campaign and they were totally stubborn they said we don't need we don't need the millennials we don't need this we don't need that you know go look at the results <laughs> it happened the same in australia a few years ago we had our prime minister kevin rudd at the time but he won purely because he had the social media presence. He got on TV. He did all that outreach that the other guys were like, no, we're politicians. We're too proper for that. But he won yeah. the popular vote for that reason. No, you got to know where the audience is going. See, you know, the Gwen Gretzky quote. You don't, mm. don't go where the puck is. You go where the puck's going. But that's what all the great copywriting books are about. Mm. You know, it's funny. I went through the six legends in our book and accumulated all of these quotes from them. And they're all like copywriters, at least to some degree, like Gene Schwartz wrote copy, Halbert wrote copy, David Ogilvy wrote copy, Hopkins wrote copy, Capels wrote copy, and, and Collier wrote copy, all six of them. They weren't all copywriters full-time, but they all wrote copy. Not one of them didn't mention when they were talking about how, why they were successful as copywriters, they, none of them stopped talking about the market. You know, it was almost like... Um, 
you know, uh, you, you, if you don't, like, you know, Gene Schwartz's favorite magazine was National Enquirer, you know, understanding what people wanted, needed, what was the conversation going on in their head, which is a quote, it might be a Halbert quote. So the, the idea that list selection and, and audience um, analysis was really as important as the actual writing on writing down the copy is really what one of the big things I took away from the book. I told Craig, you know, um, he, his big take, one of his biggest takeaways was how they all like were obsessed with research, which I think is another key thing. You know, that gets lost because online marketing is you can get online so quickly, you kind of take shortcuts and you don't do research, both in terms of your audience, your copy, your product. So the research thing is something that all six had in common. But the other was understanding audience. That's actually a question I'll come back to um, around research. One thing I can't, as you've been talking about this, I can't help but draw a parallel between you and uh, the guys at Agora, uh, Mr. Ford, Mark Ford, Mark, uh, I'm going to blank it as a last name, Masterson. Uh, uh, well, Mark Ford, Mike, Michael Masterson, and then, and then there's Bill Bond, who started the company. Well, Agora and Boardroom were, they weren't sister companies by any means, but um, we actually once had a conversation. I mean, it was never going to happen, but Marty and I once met with Bill and talked about, you know, what if Agora and Boardroom combined forces? Because we were very different in that they did a lot of um, uh, deeper investment stuff than we did, you know, more technical investment stuff. And on the health front, they did a much better job in the supplement area than we did. But we did, a, I think, a better job in the broad-based consumer markets than they did. And we used all the same copywriters. Um, they were, you know, we, we exchanged tens, if not hundreds of millions of names with them over the years. So, you know, at the time in the 1980s, there were three, the three big kahunas in, there were a few others too, actually. I shouldn't just say there were three. But the three biggest kahunas in newsletter publishing were uh, Agora Boardroom and Phillips Publishing, um, and at the time Phillips was about a maybe a two hundred million dollar business. Boardroom was about a hundred million, and Agora was about forty. And Agora right now is probably well over five hundred million with all their divisions, I would think. Um, but the interesting thing is that we we the, the thing we had in common, the thread that we all had in common, was our commitment to working with the best copywriters. And the best copywriters who understood markets way better than, you know, they were all A-list copywriters as opposed to B copywriters. Um, we paid them. We paid them royalties. We treated them like partners. We, you know, we knew that if they made a million dollars a year, we were making a lot more than that. There was a, an abundant mindset in marketing that was not prevalent. There were other companies, too. There was KCI Communications run by a guy named Bob Kephart who – when he sold that, when he got out of that business, he ended up consulting with Agora. Um, and there were some others, Weiss Research, which is still around, Clayton Makepeace writes for them. Yeah. There's a bunch of great um, publishers, but Agora, and Agora is still a hero company of mine. I mean, in fact, at my mastermind coming up, uh, Mark Ford's going to be a guest, and um, oh, I've got a member. Um, he, I've got he's a member. the hardest uh, person to reach. Like, he's well, nowhere. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's... Um, He's been a friend for. I, I'm a big admirer of Mark, and in fact, I, I knew Mark before he got to Agora. He um, ran a company in Florida called Newsletter Management with a guy by the name of Joel Nadell, yeah. and they were cutting edge. I mean, some people thought that they were, you know, 
there was something shady in, in some of their marketing, but they were brilliant marketers. In fact, I think I read the Wikipedia page about them. They were, they were the attorney general went after them in New York State, and the whole thing was thrown out mm -hmm. eventually. But um, I remember meeting Mark back then, and I said, this guy is one of the most brilliant marketer slash copywriters because he's not just a copywriter he you know really understood all the things i'm talking business, about that's, that's why i keep with the world class uh, his uh, what you said from the beginning like, as soon as you said entrepreneur i'm like brian mark very similar and same with your relationship with marty and him with bill i'm like that is eerily similar to how you both had that same sort of personalities and relationships yeah and both i I'm 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 honored you would put me in the same category as Mark Ford. I he, he I can't hold a candle to him yeah. when it comes to you know the areas that he's an expert in. I mean, he is somebody I really look up to. Um so yeah, I'm uh I I but I do think that his relationship to Bill and mine with Marty, there might be some similarities. Um Mark is much more um you know, he's so diverse, you know, he's, he's a real estate investor. He, he's just a, he's, you know, I, I there's a lot of things where I really feel like I can't hold a candle to him, but, um, we're, we're, we're really, um, there's a lot of mutual admiration there. Yeah. That's awesome. I think you kind of mentioned it with one of the interviews with Kevin as well, talking about copywriting and how you're more strategist or what is it, what is your real difference between you and Mark in terms of how you guys we're part of your companies. Yeah, Mark actually, um, with his background, writing copy, which I didn't, you know, I didn't write packages soup to nuts. Um, Mark was, could work as an internal copy chief, where what that means is if a, even an A-list copywriter sends in copy to Agora that Mark would get, Mark could actually go through it page by page, edit it, um, and the copywriter would actually make changes based on what Mark recommended. Whereas on the other side, I didn't play that role at boardroom because I, I mean, I came up with ideas for headlines. I came up with ideas for overall platforms. So maybe that's where I might've said strategist versus, mm. you know, copy chief. Mark is both. I mean, Mark was able to do both. I could really only do one, not because I wasn't, didn't have the ability. It just, I felt mm. that there were people better than me who could do the real copy chiefing. I had people on staff who would do the proofreading, who would do the nitty gritty. I spent a lot of time with my copywriters before they started writing. I'm the one that would sit down with them and talk about the list universe, what we've mailed, what we, you know, who, what lists work, what lists didn't, what the, what the selection criteria were, basically defining the avatar in a very specific way. Um, so I was able to kind of be their partner as a marketer, and it's interesting, the role that I'm playing now, whether it's in Kevin Rogers' Copy Chief Group or at AWAI, where I just spoke, which is also a copywriter's group, the role that I kind of play is kind of the marketer who oversaw a lot of great copywriters and copy, but I did not, you know, copy chief in the way that a Mark Ford or a Bill Bonner does. And there was a guy at Phillips named Richard Stanton Jones same kind of thing. He was like, they had skill sets. They have skill sets I don't. Um, so I wanted to differentiate that. I'm not putting myself down. I just know what I do well, and that uh, what 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 I what I do is 
the prep. And then also I was really good with the copywriters when we were doing postmortems, like postmortems, meaning after the mailing went out, what worked, what didn't, what should we test next? Those were the discussions where I was really the most effective. And with my clients now, my consulting clients, it's, it's exactly like that. Like they'll come to me and say, I tested this, I did that. Let's put everything up on a whiteboard, figure out what would be next. That's where I have my strength. Like I, so it is more bigger picture, but it is about offers. It is about, you know, messaging overall, but it's not the nitty gritty. Actually, I do headlines. I do subject lines. I do all of that. I, I, I name premiums. I'm very good at that, but I don't, I don't do like the, the, this what I call be, the real uh, copy, copy, copy editing yeah. stuff. You've I see almost a very technical in what you're able to do, like lists and all that kind of stuff. Whereas I guess they're more nitty gritty as well. I guess that's the difference. I yeah. I, I would, yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I've always, I, coming out of the list business, which is what I did for 10 years, um, I think prepared me really well to be very audience centric as opposed to be copy centric. And I always talk about in other interviews and I talk a lot about, you know, that it's, it may be that lists are actually a bit, I don't want to say more important, but if you get the list selection right, mm. you kind of can throw almost anything at it in terms of copy. And you'll probably make some money, you know. Yeah. You won't do as well if you do shitty copy to, to a really targeted list with a good offer. However, the opposite, the opposite is not true. Like the opposite, if you if you get copy from the best copywriter in the world, but you mail it to the wrong list with a shitty offer, you're probably not going to make any money. So you've wasted all your your creative dollars. So what happens, I think, a lot online is that. They get the list selection right because mm. with affiliates and people endorsing you, it's not as difficult to find targeted right. universes. Yeah. yeah, so it's very, it's a lot easier to, to be able to find lists that work and you can come up with offers. I mean, you know, there are so many people doing so many different offers that people can copy each other's offers easily and, and legitimately. They yeah. can steal smart. But then they don't spend a lot of time on the creative and they still make money and then they kind of get a little bit lazy. And I think if you talk to a lot of top-notch copywriters today who are now moving from offline to online or have moved offline to online, they are finding that they can make big uh, strides with online marketers with very little effort because the creative has not been paid as much attention to uh, as it could have. So there's just a lot of opportunity for improvement on the creative side because they already got the, to some degree, the list selection and the offers dialed in. And then you take it to another level, like a Ryan Levesque, and, you know, so you start doing multiple segments. Now you could actually get, get even better, but make sure you match that up with messaging that goes to the segments. Brilliant. If you were speaking to a younger person coming up who's trying to build a large company, what advice would you give them, like, if they were to focus on two, two or three things that they focus on and just focus on that, what would you suggest? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's to focus on one or two things. Um, you know, I think that, you know, when you're, when you have a million dollar business and all you're talking about is how I'm going to 10x and the 10x is about revenue, you get lost. You get lost because yeah. you think you have to do so many ideas to do that. And I think, 
you've got to really, you know, I, I would highly recommend reading books like Essentialism and The One Thing and kind of really being focused on, you know, what's going to give you the most leverage in your business. Um, you know, my journey, I mean, I don't see myself, you know, creating another, you know, nine figure business in my life. I mean, I might, I don't think so. Um, but what I do want to do is be the coach to a lot of other businesses through my mastermind groups that are going to be the next 10 to hundred million dollar businesses. And then my teachings and the speakers that I can bring and the, the in intelligence I can bring will help them grow. So I think, you know, you've got to be, so the thing, the advice I give always is, you know, being a lifelong student, um, you got to read the classics. You've got, you don't want to spend all your time educating yourself. You got to spend some time doing, but you also have to learn really intelligent outsourcing. You know, you really, that's why I bring people to my mastermind groups like Ari Mizell, who teaches, you know, really how to use virtual assistants properly and, you know, really, you know, not doing stuff, you know, most entrepreneurs will spend a lot of time not doing the stuff they do the best. I mean, Dan Sullivan talks about this in Strategic Coach all the time, that if you're not working in your unique ability, first you understand what your unique ability is, but you have to know what that is and make sure that whenever you find yourself working outside your unique ability that you outsource it. And you're going to have to be willing to spend some money on things that you don't like to do and things you don't want to do even if you're compelled to like, you know, be a control freak and do them yourself. So that's like the broad. Mm. The more narrow would be, you know, as you're kind of um, narrowing down the ideas, you know, make sure that the ideas that you come up with, I mean, when you, when you know it, you see it usually, but it's like, I love the idea of what I call the horizontal vertical. And the horizontal vertical is like coming up with, niching down as much as you can but still, when you niche down, there's like that hung, there's still a starving crowd there. So you see this like in certain niches in the medical field. Chiropractors, for example, the guys who coach chiropractors and the guys who are in that marketplace, they understood that chiropractors were, the, were, the, were a type of doctor that really saw that it was so competitive that marketing was going to be key to them. Whereas a normal physician in a family practice, doesn't even want to know about marketing, even though they should. Yeah. So the the marketing people who decided that being a chiropractor or being a coach to chiropractors was one of those niches that was a horizontal vertical, meaning that it was a really tight vertical, maybe competitive, yes, yeah. but those people were so hungry for marketing information that became a great business. So I think, you know, that, and, and you kind of know it when you see it. I mean, in, in, in the health field, a horizontal vertical for us at Boardroom, unfortunately, was diabetes or is diabetes. Diabetes is an epidemic in the United States. I mean, 30 million people, I think, are affected in one way or another, whether it's pre-diabetic that they don't even know it. Um, and so it was a big audience, and yet you could niche it down in copy and talk about some specific diet and 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 you know supplementation and things that were out there in terms of you know health information that were niche. It wasn't like general health. Well, we did well in general health info as well. But finding those horizontal verticals is just I don't know. It's killer. It's, a, it's where your hot market is when they're really got that pressing need. I'm gonna ask. I mean, you hear it all the time. 
in, in the product launch formula community, like Jeff Walker, the, the people that do best are the ones that not only niche, but then they niche again and niche again and niche again. And it's such a tight market, but it's such a hungry market by the time they get to it. And, hmm. and you never want to be number two. I, there's a great, great book called The Star Principle by Richard Koch, who is one of Perry Marshall's mentors. And he wrote a book on 80-20. And The Star Principle is brilliant. It's a brilliant book. And he just wrote a new book called Simplify. But but the um, the uh, the star principle is all about becoming a star company, and you know one of the big principles is you don't want to be number two in a big market. You want to be number one in a small market. That's cool. From a outside of the technical aspect, can you talk a bit about the mental stuff that goes through building something like that? How many? How long do you work? What kind of? What was the process like? What were the hardest aspects of building a company like Boardroom? Yeah, I, I, I made a ton of mistakes. You know, I, um, you know, I, and I sometimes I worked hard and not smart. I'll tell you that. Um, I think um, the biggest challenges were always, you know, the next shiny object and taking your eye off the ball on something that was a cash cow or something that was actually bringing in all the money, but you got bored with it. Yeah. Um, and that's what most entrepreneurs go through. And I think in our journey, we did that. The biggest, um, the biggest thing, though, that we did constantly was, again, never met a medium we didn't like. So we tested everything. The joke I always say in one of my bios is that, you know, I tested the back of yogurt lids and I tested the back of ATM receipts. And I always say those were kind of good ideas at the time. Um, so... Um, very, very difficult to not resist new ideas, but not resisting new media. I think, you know, I think, I think always looking to see if, if some medium could work for you is important, but the biggest struggles I think were, you know, working harder, not smarter, not outsourcing enough, um, feeling like, you know, we had to do much more on our own as opposed to, um, you know, finding experts. One of the big keys is once we started paying, you know, incredible consultants and mentors to help us, that was one of the big breakthroughs for us that we got so much further faster. It was sort of like our version of masterminding, even though we didn't attend a lot of masterminds back then. We, I think we understood the concept better than most and we shared like crazy. Like I was always in groups with people that were definitely not as sophisticated as boardroom. And yet I shared everything that we were doing because if I gave them four ideas and they gave me one, that was okay. You know, this idea that everything's got to be a quid pro quo and it's got to be equal 50-50, that's bullshit. You know, mm. there's no way that you're ever going to get complete 50-50 with anything. So I never worked in, in, in the book Give and Take by Adam Grant. He talks about everybody's either givers, a giver, a taker, or a matcher. And... You know, a matcher is somebody as if I give to you, you give to me. And I think we never worked that way. Marty and I were always, I mean, sometimes we, we cut people off if they took advantage of us or if they ripped us off or something like that. But we were just really obsessive about giving to the community, giving to other companies or whatever we learned. And what we got in return was, was incredible. Well, I think you really become the linchpin of your community. That's what makes you bigger by being at center that everyone else revolves around. I think so many people in, I guess, the marketing space, when you start to see them go over and this idea of, I want to 
protect my ideas, can't share anything to, I'm going to give it all away and just share everything. That's when they start to rise more. That's what, at least what oh, I'm yeah. The, it, when I got to the, uh, the direct marketing business in the 1980s, the big kahuna in, in um, direct marketing was Reader's Digest. There are people probably listening to this and never even heard of Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest is one of the largest direct marketing companies, magazine companies ever. And they had state-of-the-art database marketing at the time. They had, you know, tens of millions of names on their database. They were doing sophisticated modeling. They were doing all sorts of, you know, stuff that no one else was doing. But they never spoke at the, at the conferences. They never shared what they were doing. And the fact was that years later, what they were doing was not as proprietary as they thought. You know, this attitude that we're Reader's Digest and you're not did not serve them well. They ended up going bankrupt a couple of different times. They, you know, the joke was to me, and I love the company and I looked up to the company, but you know, they had all this original artwork, like original Vincent Van Gogh's and Monet's in the, in the, in the, in the, in the office. And when they sold all that artwork off for cash flow reasons, it was sort of like, you know, it was hard to feel bad for them, you know, because what, what you know, they really, they really uh, put out an, uh, they weren't putting out bad karma, but I think it is bad karma when you think that you're smarter than everybody else. It's mm -hmm. just, I think the world, the world will not, you know, it definitely rewards the givers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately they're, you're going to give and get taken advantage of at times, yeah. but net net, it's going to be much better when you're in a giving mentality. And the story of Reader's Digest is one worth telling in terms of that of not being a giving company, thinking that you were smarter than everybody else, and then they're the ones that didn't stand the test of time. It's when it comes down to the, the fall of great empires is always when the ego starts to get too much. You stop you exactly. testing you're too good. Um, awesome. Back to the research side. This is actually one of the points I had with Craig. I was like, I'm not sure I agree, but I guess I understand why it works, but with research, do you have a process to it, or is it more what I hear most copywriters say? They just immerse themselves in the in the information. No, no, I think there is a process to it. If I'm a copywriter, you know, you got to know everything. You got to read everything. Look at all the quotes from Gene Schwartz about, you know, you have to understand what makes the country tick all the time. You know, he said I have a great quote from him about, you know go around not understanding what the country's needs and desires are at your peril, at your peril. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so the copywriter definitely has to take such deep dives. When I had medical information that I needed on certain things, I used to go to copywriters on certain things because if they wrote about it, they probably knew more than my doctor did. Um, now, now the research side as a marketer though is also very important. You don't want to, you don't want to have, um, paralysis from analysis, but, I never launched a product like a new book or a new newsletter without researching my current best buyers to see what else they might want. And so we did a lot of what we call concept testing, questionnaire testing, and there's a real methodology to it. And I'm not, I don't have the patience for it. You know, I'm definitely one of the guys that I have a good idea, screw it. In fact, I launched the diabetes book without really researching it because that one I just knew, you know, once I researched it on my own, I didn't have to do much research to find out that if I had the right copy, I already had the starving crowd of people who needed this information. It was life-saving. So, and I found the same thing with, with memory and Alzheimer's and, and mind stuff. People were just so 
you know, uh, worried about it that. I said passionate, but you're saying a different word. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, 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 that was the exception in terms of not doing research. More times than not, I never would have known that, for example, um, leads regarding um, cholesterol were better than just heart disease. Or talking about cholesterol in some respects was better than talking about blood pressure. Because when we were, to, when we were talking about a heart product, a heart disease product, for whatever reason, the mindset of the of the audience of the of the of the, you know, once we did our research, for some reason, the idea of high cholesterol scared more people than the idea of high blood pressure, which never, I never understood. Now we use both; they're both really good <laughs> to use. Um, but, you know, I think blood pressure is way more uh, dangerous. High blood pressure way more dangerous than high cholesterol because high cholesterol could boost. be a lot of different things. And you can get cholesterol under control with diet way easier than you can blood pressure, although you can get blood pressure under control with diet as well. So learning those kinds of things were critical so that when we did a headline that became a control for five years called the five the, the, the 10 cent cholesterol cure, you know, which was, a, you know, which was was something that, you know, the idea of getting something out of your kitchen cabinet that can reduce your cholesterol. That was killer stuff, you know. So, yeah, don't underestimate research. You can't. You can't. You still have to go with your gut on certain things. Guess what I'm getting at there is more, whenever I ask copywriter about their research process, it's always, I'm going to immerse myself. It's not, I go through at least get these questions and then I immerse myself to get whatever extra information. It's like, do the, do the programs yeah. that work at Boardroom have a particular process they go through or is it more just following the garden yeah yeah i mean yeah path. no 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 concept testing i mean i can't go into all the details but yeah, you know that's a step that could be its own call we could talk about research yeah. that's a that's its own subject but yes we had lots of processes uh for research for we didn't do it we did a lot more quantitative research than we did in qualitative meaning focus groups were okay but it was more about mailing big chunks of our list based on the best buyers and what they would want the most. So, um, you know, that was something that was, you know, critically important for us. Okay. Well, I think I'm coming to the end of the time that we scheduled for you. So being respectful of what you've got to do for the rest of the day and get ready. Right. I'm just well, telling my 10 o'clock that I'm going to just be a few minutes late. But yes, if we could, you know, figure out, I don't know, are people asking other questions that seem uh, to be no pressing? We've got Doug saying hello, Doug at Deanna, I think a friend of yours. I guess wrapping up. Yeah, Doug, you had a great copyright. Yeah, wrapping up would be one of the most um, pressing things that you'd want to tell people right now. And finally, where can they get a copy of your book that it's still available? Yeah, so um, it, you can buy the book on Amazon, but I highly recommend you don't. I highly, I highly recommend you do, but you do it through my site because if you go to thelegendsbook.com, t h e l e g e n d s com thelegendsbook.com um, you go there um, you choose where you want to buy the book I think you can go to Amazon Barnes and Noble or uh, indie books and you go um, you go to that um, you go opens up a new window you buy the book you come back to the site um, there's an email address there 
that you send your receipt to, and then you're able to opt in to get um, a swipe file from all six legends, uh, Ogilvy Hopkins, uh, Collier, uh, Caples, Halbert and Schwartz, all six legends, uh, at least 10 ads per, like their best stuff. And you can download that. It's on the site. There's also videos you'll have access to from Ogilvy, Halbert and Schwartz. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of them, one of the Ogilvy's is Ogilvy appearing on David Letterman, which is kind of cool. And then there's also a PDF of scientific advertising by um, Claude Hopkins, but it's an illustrated and annotated version that I got permission to give away by Bob Bly, a great copywriter. And so you get all of that, plus a couple of special reports that Craig put together that we didn't didn't make it into the book from the legend. So you get you get all of that um, just brilliant stuff um, in terms of um, the giveaways. And so that's the way you should buy the book, thelegendsbook.com. It's readily available um, on all of those uh, sites. And I just uh, and then folks would also be opted into my list. Um, I blog almost every week. I tell a lot of good stories about the legends, a lot of the stuff we talked about today. I think I probably do have to do now a blog post about why research is so important. And um, I think I've done some about that, um, or at least variations of that. Um, and as far as what I want to leave your folks with is that, you know, I think that education is, 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 is a lifelong pursuit. You know, it's not you know, I'm 58 years old and I feel like I'm as much a student today as anything, even though I see myself as a teacher. And so I think on a, on a recent podcast, my interviewer said to me, you know, this idea that you, you learn by teaching couldn't be more true. And as someone coming from a perspective of being in the business for over 35 years and still being kind of a kid in a candy store, learning every day, you know, really coming up with just incredible ways to, uh, you know, as I said, getting that golden ticket to getting into rooms with the best online marketers, sharing what I knew in the offline world and how it applies. Is I don't see any more important thing that a marketer or entrepreneur today could be doing than to be merging those worlds. So um, that's probably the overview, and you know, that's a lot of what the book about and why I decided to do the book with Craig. I'll do it. I'm, I'm working. I'm going to be start working on my next book, which is more about you know my my story and 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 my lessons. A lot of the questions you asked me today about you know the you know I, even I've written blog posts about my biggest mistakes and you know you got to make some, some big ones to get to get somewhere and um, you know everybody's heard you know don't be afraid to fail. I'm not going to get all cliched on everybody here, um, but it's it, it's it's absolutely um, it's critical to not ignore the past. Mate, this has been brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, you enjoy your next in meetings, interviews, and uh, I'll speak to you soon. <laughs>